Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. For two decades, David Gregory was one of the most familiar faces on broadcast news. As the White House correspondent for NBC News, he covered the entire Bush administration and then had the unenviable task of succeeding the legendary Tim Russert as host of Meet the Press. I had many encounters on that show with David uh, during the years that I was working in the White House. But in certain ways... We learn more about David and who he was after he left Meet the Press when he lost that job. He wrote a book called How's Your Faith about his fuller embrace of Judaism later in life and what that meant to him in the face of his setbacks. David came to the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago to moderate a panel on covering Trump, and I sat down with him to talk about his life, career, and where we are today. David Gregory, my friend, I remember, I don't know how many times, being remote, waiting to go on Meet the Press with you, and 10 seconds before the show starting, thinking, what the hell am I doing here? (laughs) What am I, crazy? Uh, Because I had the burdens of speaking for an administration, and you always felt like you were out on a ledge uh, when you... uh, when you were exposed on those on those Sunday programs, Meet the Press being the uh, most obvious example. But uh, so I guess that's by way of saying I'm glad to turn the mics around yeah. a, a little. Yeah. Well, and have a different kind of conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I do love your podcast and others because, um, and when I was doing my own, it is a free flowing conversation. You know, on my end of interviewing you. There was a lot of pressure, too, because I had to think about time and I had yeah. to think about how to move you off of what I knew you wanted to right. say. In and a we- sense, it's a kabuki dance in a way. I mean, you know, not to denigrate in any way what you were doing or what I was doing, but we both had a job. And in a sense, I knew what you were going to ask me. Right. You knew what I was going to say. And you tried to get me off of what I was going to say. And I, you know, was... And I tried to be disciplined enough not to make the news that I didn't want to make. Right. And that is something that we witness every week uh, on these shows. And, and I think part of, you know, sometimes it's very informative and sometimes people do get off their talking points. But a lot of times it it just becomes kind of a familiar sort of exercise. It does. You know, when I started doing the program, as you remember, you guys were just coming in. Yes. And of course, you're dealing with the financial collapse. And I took very seriously the challenge uh, that my wife gave me, which is you need to really dig in on uh, the financial system in this country and the banking system in this country. And I had a number of interviews. Of which she, she, as a very, very prominent lawyer, former right. prosecutor, and all of that had a pretty in-depth knowledge. She did. She was the general counsel of Fannie Mae when the mm-hmm. government uh, moved in and then resigned once the government uh, did that. Uh, a funny encounter with President Bush about all of that when I when I said to him, uh, I said, by the way, my, my wife was a general counsel of Fannie Mae, so thanks for that. <laughs> and he said, well... I know a lot of people over there thought they were doing the right thing. Here's a problem for your wife. My guy, Hank Paulson, didn't agree. <laughs> <laughs> but but the point was that in those conversations, I really thought we got to um, we got to something real because there it was an illuminating conversation and there in was, some cases about that. And I right. think whether it's politics or the discipline of of going back and forth with you know the 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 gatekeepers sometimes the pushback was important 
And sometimes, you know, there were moments, especially with with Robert Gibbs, you know, the press secretary, who notably, I think, uh, committed news without meaning to. And uh, that's still not the most. I mean, it's satisfying when Joe Biden commits major news on on gay marriage. Yes, you you, you elicited that, which uh, which, by the way, was so interesting because we're we're pre-taping that interview with Biden. And uh, a terrific producer is now at uh, ABC, Chris Donovan. Um, and, and we would always prepare six ways from Sunday on the question of gay marriage, especially with the Democrats, because we knew this issue was going to break. Mm-hmm. And on that particular day, we, uh, we said we weren't going to get to it. But I had a little note up at the top. And he starts going on, Biden does, about family values and, and the Republicans. And I, and I just... I just thought, you know, well, you might talk about family values. What about gay marriage? The president says he's evolved. Have you? And then he's going on and on. You can be very long-winded. <laughs> and he starts saying, you know, I'm at a gay wedding last week. And this, that, and the other. And he's talking about the child and the mm-hmm. love. And I'm just thinking, where are we going here? <laughs> and then he mentions, he said, you know, Will and Grace did more to change attitudes about homosexuality. And I'm thinking... Oh my gosh, home run. But I still was so in the moment, it took me till afterward when I thought, did we, was that what I thought it was? And my producer says, hell yes, it was. The White House, you may be Well, I was a part of it. I mean, I, I, you guys started valiantly tried. Right yeah, away. well, you know, here's the thing. Just to give you what, for our end of the thing, and for those of you who don't remember, this was back in 2012. And, uh, the vice president jumped out ahead of the president, basically in terms of uh, endorsing uh, same-sex marriage. And we we really were planning on the president. The president was insisting on making a statement about this. At the beginning of the 2012 campaign, 2011, he said, "Just t- someone's going to ask me this question, and I am going to answer it, and you guys should be prepared uh, for that. And we actually had thought, like in the next couple of weeks after Biden was on that show. He was president was going to be in New York. He had a couple of things scheduled. That would be a good time. Uh, so there was a lot of consternation <laughs> at that, that time. Uh, but and I remember uh, and I tried to say I tried to parse words in in the worst Washington tradition to explain why Biden <laughs> wasn't saying what he actually was saying, and uh, that the president. Uh, you know, and people were mad, you know, uh, in the White House. Uh, and and then but I, I talked to the president and he said, you know what? I can't I can't get mad at Joe for being big hearted. And, you know, he, he just said what was in his heart. He said, I know he should be more disciplined. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, and uh, was- which was one of the reasons why they had a Good relationship, you know. It was uh, Dan. Uh, um, Dan Pfeiffer. Dan Pfeiffer, who this, I heard this story, and it was way too good to check. So if it's not true, I'm still insisting it is. And he's it's a podcast, go ahead. Yeah, he apparently is reading reading the transcript and could be heard screaming, Will and fucking Grace. Yeah, that is, um, <laughs> I was not there, but that has the ring of truth to it. So, but you know, it, it was, that was an example too of, Something that we felt really good about on the show, not not to like just gratuitously make an administration's life difficult, but again, that is a moment of where you have it all the time in this program, where you're in the middle of a conversation and something happens, and if you're listening, something yes. happens and yeah. it's real, and it harkened back to you know that was big front page news on the New York Times. I'll be honest with you, I mean, the Sunday shows have fallen away from being able to break that kind of news, and uh, I certainly struggled to do that. And, yeah, I mean, and one of the, I actually felt for you because I always felt like you had these questions. You know what the strategy if you're a if you're a White House official or a public official is and you know there's a question that you don't want to answer particularly that you have a list of things that you need to get to. Right. So if you if you don't answer once, you don't answer twice, maybe it's a there's a third approach, but if you don't answer at some point you have to say Hey, I got these six other questions right. I have to get to. But the audience doesn't appreciate that. And in, in this in this political environment, and I experienced that firsthand, you would get hammered for being rude, for hammering too much, or for not following enough, letting so and so get away with something. And I you know, one of the things that, that I tried to learn from Tim Russert is that it was important that your guest feel like he or she 
was heard. Mm-hmm. And even if you were tough with them, people knew, you know, mm-hmm. that whole approach. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, I can be fairly confrontational and I struggle with my temper as I've written about. And so that part was real. But I, I honestly didn't love that. I mean, yeah. uh, my, well, my, my favorite- observation, and I meant to get to yeah. this later in the conversation, but we're here now. So let's talk <laughs> about it. My observation now, especially knowing you, uh, and but I, I felt it then. I would watch you on, say, the Today Show and other venues, and there was a lightness and a humor and a and, and a whole dimension that uh, seemed sort of cramped on Meet the Press. That yeah. that you know, but Russert had. And I revered Tim as every as we all did, and you worked for and with him. Uh, but he had his own style, and and there was a sort of prosecutorial right. nature to it. I remember going when I was working for uh, President Obama in two thousand and eight, and I would appear on Meet the Press as an aide to the president, and Tim would be walking into the studio with like a folder full of papers falling out and everything else, and he said, "Are are you ready?" Are you ready? Like I was going in for orals, you know, (laughs) oral exams. And, um, but, um, you know, he had his own style and it it always felt to me like what an incredible burden you had following him and people had an expectation and there wasn't really room for you to kind of develop your own style and approach because... The template had been so established over such a long time. I I think the worst assignment in certain ways, and I'm sure you'll you can push back on me on this, but to follow any sort of immortal figure in broadcasting and be the next person. Right. That's that's a tough assignment. It is, and it was. And it doesn't mean that you don't give it a shot when you have the opportunity. I mean, I thought I would get the opportunity for a long time. I didn't expect it so soon. Um, and you know, I thought about doing the today show and I think I would have really liked that. And I think in many ways that I was sort of, you know, that was the most natural fit, Mm -hmm. but I think intellectually I, and, and having covered the white house and, um, I, I would, you know, I don't think I was a political junkie by any means, but I, but I love history and I love the political process and I love questions about leadership and I love being up close to history as I was covering the White House. I, I mean, I thought I, w- I, I, that it was a great job and that I'd be perfect for it. But the difficulty I faced was, you know, I thought my immediate task was I had to measure up. Yeah. And I'm a real mimic, so I can mimic almost anyone and and study what they do. And so I did a lot of that. And I thought I was able to, I mean, I, not that I was ever going to be him, but I could sort of match that template. But in the process, I, was, uh, I wasn't able and didn't feel comfortable enough to just say, let's do my own thing. And I, I sought a lot of counsel on this. And everybody from, you know, guys who became friends like Jamie Dimon and, and other really in- interesting thinkers who said, you have to get together and kind of imagine, if I were going to start this thing over again, what would I do? But the problem is, that's too risky. You yeah. can do that if you're starting a podcast, starting a new show. Right. You couldn't take Meet the Press and say, what if we were just tearing it up and doing it again? Because there was enough of that audience that has a built-in expectation. Right. And you have to you – ha- you need time is the real point. You need time to evolve into that. Yeah. No, but but, the, I, but your other point was, for me, I, yes. me, exploration in conversation, exploration in interviews – is what I know is what I really care yeah. about. And when I had those opportunities, they were very satisfying. Yeah. But it's, but, and my point is the format didn't always, you know, right. even Tim had a much better opportunity for that because in his, when, when Meet the, even in 2008, when he was finishing, you know, before he tragically passed away, uh, finishing his tenure. Um, he would have hour-long interviews with people. That's true. One hour. Yeah. Unthinkable now on a Sunday show. I did that with Secretary Clinton, her first uh, hour-long interview with Secretary of State. It was was great. I had so much fun doing it. I think she was comfortable doing it. I think there was a lot of light and a lot of illumination in that interview. It was good journalism. Yeah. And we we had the ability to, to carry that off. But again, just a lot of pressures. And look, I think the Sunday shows have been benefited tremendously, have benefited tremendously 
by Donald Trump and the irony of Trump, as much as he hates the media, as much as he talks like an authoritarian and crosses the line into fake news, he's so available. It's unbelievable. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the real uh, irony of him is for all his complaints, he he starves for, he is starved every minute for that. Atten- he loves being the center loves it. of attention. And by the way, I think this is one of the problems for the Republican Party going into November, because the truth is, they've got a lot of things they can say. I mean, you know, I don't agree with a lot of what he's done, but the conservative judges, the deregulation, the tax bill, you know, he can say to his base, I pulled out of these global treaties. I think that's these were bad, maybe disastrous decisions, but he did them. Uh, and the economy, he, he inherited a very strong economy and it's getting stronger. Um, he juiced it a little, yep. uh, the stock market in particular with the tax cuts. But the problem is he still sits there in the 30s. Why? Because of him. Because of his behavior. And that is a pathological thing. That is an unchangeable thing. And that's the reality that the Republican Party is staring at, that they can't deal with the one thing that is holding their uh, his and their numbers back, which is his own behavior. I understand that would certainly affect him this year and affect the party. But don't you think that once we get into a, a, an election cycle where it's Trump against someone else— you look at Hillary Clinton, there was a lot about her deficiencies, but there's still, he seems to benefit a lot from this pushback that people feel. When, when I speak in different parts of the country, I hear it all the time. People don't like the media. They don't like, yeah. even if they don't like him, they don't like the obsessiveness, the tonnage, and a, a sense of hatred that they sense in the media for Trump. Yeah, yeah. No, these I, are not I, like hardcore Trump people. I, I think that that is, I think that that is true. Um, I still think that um, there is, there may be a sense of exhaustion, you know, at the end of it, that four years of this, you can see people saying, no much, I can't, I can't handle another four like this, but it may not be. Look, I would be the last to say, because I, like so many others, underestimated him in 2016. So I would never underestimate him now. But I need to get back to your story. Sure. Everybody knows about Donald Trump. <laughs> but I, I want to talk about your story. And I want to start with uh, your your family and growing up mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Your dad was a, a producer. Yep. Uh, tell me about him. And tell me, first, let's go back just a couple. Your family, your dad was, is, was Jewish. Mm-hmm. Your mom uh, was a Catholic. Catholic. Yeah. Um, but where did their families come from? Yeah. So, you know, my dad grew up in New York, um, in the Bronx, uh, off the Grand Concourse. And his father died when he was four. And his mother was someone with whom he was not. No, was his father, or where, when did the family get here? The family had gotten here. I think his uh, father had been born in uh, what is now Belarus, mm-hmm. uh, and he had come here. and His and his dad was in the in the meat transportation business. His uncle, his uh, his mother's uh, brothers, were very successful businessmen. They owned a restaurant, a deli, um, and and they did very well. But my grandmother on my father's side always kind of struggled, and uh, kind of had to live off uh, off uh, her siblings and all of that you know created a real chip on my dad's shoulder so he was uh you know he wanted to be an actor he wanted to get in show business and everybody thought he was crazy don ginsburg he changed his name to gregory um and he you know so he was a tough tough guy growing up in the bronx and not finishing college going out to california to try to become uh, an actor ultimately became an agent uh, had a really interesting career managed harry belafani hmm. um and uh, kind of fell out with belafani over there were other things like money but you know and there were issues around civil rights and belafani's uh, you know um, activities in, in the civil rights movement which my dad didn't always understand and and so there was that was an interesting dynamic but rowan and martin you know who did laugh yes. and uh, frank gorshin uh, and red buttons and bobby darren so my dad had this really interesting career he was in vegas and um met my mother actually introduced by the comedian bob newhart my mother was a really? singer aspiring 
dancer. And uh, so, uh, you know, so they met each other and then they lived out in Vegas and my father became a theatrical producer. And I spent a lot of time on Broadway as a kid, as the son of a of a theatrical producer, even though we grew up in Los Angeles. Um, and my mother, you know, my mother grew and you up. Probably, what, what kinds of shows did he... Produced. He did. He did Camelot and My Fair Lady in uh, 1980, 81. Those were the revivals of those shows. Sure. He did. Um, uh, he, it's funny. I sent you that picture because you guys looked uh, had uh, yes. some similarities with your black mustache. mustache. In 1970, um, I want to say it was 74. He did Clarence Darrow with Henry Fonda, mm-hmm. and they brought that to Washington. And I remember George McGovern was there, and I just discovered because I'm you know good friends with Tim Shriver, his parents, Sergeant and Eunice Shriver, in a picture meeting my dad because I'm creating this uh. photo book about my dad. And so they had this thing at Kennedy Center that was uh, kind of a heady thing for my dad. My dad loved, um, I mean, he loved politics from afar, but he loved the headiness of, of world affairs in Washington, and nothing pleased him more. And he was a big advisor to me in my career, and nothing, nothing impressed him more than you know that the idea that I had this front row seat to history, that I knew presidents and kings, as he would say. Did you, um, you, you must have known Henry Fonda. You must have met him and some yeah, of the stars I, that he worked. With. I was Richard too Burton. young. Yeah, Richard Burton, I met and. Rex Harrison and uh, um, uh, uh, Richard Harris, uh, with whom my dad almost had a fist fight uh, in New York. In your presence? Uh, not in my presence. I was a little young, but I, but I was uh, at home in L.A. And it was on Entertainment Tonight. It was the lead story <laughs> on Entertainment Tonight that my father and Richard Harris almost came to blows. This was during the when, when HBO uh, was doing shooting the production and that, when HBO did stuff like that <laughs> at that yes. point. You know? So it, it was a very interesting career. My dad was always a big advisor for me and uh, incredibly you, interesting. But, but I guess my question is, did you never think about the show business, business I did. thing. So, so I did. My father and stepmom Kay had a uh, an apartment at Trump Tower, and in, uh, in the mid '80s, and we went to live with them for a summer. And my father had ups and downs in show business, rough business, and he had a really bad uh, patch where he was really, really struggling financially and trying to get things together. And uh, I went and worked in New York that summer. I worked uh, uh, in, for one of his, the general managers of one of his shows. And I remember seeing the effect that had on my dad and, and how just tough it was. And I said, oh, no, this is not for me. I don't want to be in a business that is this cutthroat and is this unstable. <laughs> kind of ironic. Uh, so we'll, we'll deal with the irony of that later. <laughs> right. But, but you, but, but by the, uh, I read somewhere by the time you were 15, you had decided that broadcast journalism was something that interested you. Why? You know, I think I had a sense that I wanted to be, um, uh, you know, I was certainly interested in theater, but I was interested more substantively in the world and in history. And I did want to be on television. I never actually thought about So this about was kind of a combination. Actor. It was, but I never thought about being a showman or being an actor. I thought, you know, yes, I like the idea of being on TV. But at that time, you know, this is the mid-80s and the three network acres are, are big figures. And I mm-hmm. used to watch, uh, actually, ABC News, and I loved Peter Jennings. I didn't tell Tom Brokaw that, you know, when <laughs> I came to uh, NBC. But I did love Peter Jennings, and I watched all the time. And, and I was really drawn to that. And, and I thought, yeah, that's for me because it really quenched my my curiosity to travel, to know the world. I was at 15, 16, 17. I wanted to be a European-based foreign correspondent. I studied French. I started getting tutored in German. And then I went to college and the wall came down. And literally, my goals changed because it all went away. (laughs) We'll be right back with David Gregory. You you mentioned uh, Peter Jennings. You got an internship in your first year in college, I guess. You went to American University. You got an internship in Tucson. Yeah. And I read somewhere you had Peter Jennings' picture on your desk. Is that true? It's true, yeah. I had an autographed picture of him on my desk, and uh, I was very proud of that, And because I had met him in New York, and he had encouraged me, and that was great. 
And uh, what your colleagues think of that? Did they think that was well? That, at that time, it was great because it was an ABC station, so everybody thought it was great. I then went <laughs> to work right after college at a, a, um, a CBS station, and I still had it up there. Uh, I hadn't made the switch over to Dan Rather. And by the time I went to KCRA, <laughs> which was an NBC station, um, which is one of the best NBC stations there is, and I had it up, somebody came back and said, you need to take that effing picture of Peter Jennings down. <laughs> so that was it for that. There are, it, you know, and in no way to denigrate the people who have the roles now, but you know, when I was, I'm a bit older than you. When I was growing up, those network anchors were, you know, icons. Yeah. Uh, so the first generation of them were, you know, uh, they had come out of World War II, you know, the, the sort of post Cronkite and Huntley and Brinkley and, and, uh, and so on. But we had this sort of larger than life swashbuckling. Peter Jennings was in that, yeah. uh, uh, that category. Tom, you know, filled the role. Absolutely. Um, we don't, that's not the way it is anymore, is it? No. No, because the um, the networks have totally changed. I mean, I'm not saying this just because I'm no longer at a network and at CNN, but the center of gravity has uh, inalterably moved away from the networks over to cable news. And that is because, um, obviously, viewing habits have changed. That's been going on for a long time. And appointment viewing has changed. So, you know, the evening news programs are are reaching a much older, sedentary... All you have uh, to do is look at the advertising. Right, a population. And the truth is they don't have the resources to pour into it like they used to. They don't. You don't have foreign bureaus the way you used to. Right. At NBC, they still have, I think, Richard Engel, who's a terrific correspondent. Yeah, who covers the whole world. Covers the whole world, essentially. It's amazing, I mean, CBS yeah. had all of these uh, uh, had all of these bureaus. They shut those down. CNN, of course, has a huge global imprint, but at the moment is still so focused domestically. So there simply aren't the resources. Those evening programs lose money. That used to be acceptable. Then, you know, they were still kind of a lost leader, but they were culturally, everything revolved, the day revolved around what nightly news wanted because of Tom Brokaw. The whole culture was built that way. It's it's totally not that way anymore. The morning shows have for a long time made all of the money. The Sunday shows, you know, I think when I was there were experiencing, you know, a real decline. I think they have held their own now because of this Trump era. Mm-hmm. But the the networks just don't have the resources and the culture has changed so that nobody feels like, you know, that those shows are driving the agenda in the way that Twitter will, or Axios might, or um, you know, or or CNN will. I mean, it's just it's different. But it's also true, and and again, this is not to denigrate the people who hold the jobs now, but uh, they're not the larger than life figures that the previous generations of right because the machines created them to be that and the way they created tom and dan and peter is they poured tremendous resources into those broadcasts into traveling them around the world i see and they dedicated assets to making sure they could go get big interviews they they paid for bookers to be with them so they were they were doing things that only they could do you think of some of the great correspondents of the networks uh martin fletcher at nbc bob simon at cbs scott pelly at cbs not just at, at, at uh, 60 Minutes, but when they were on those network newscasts, they were doing things that were really special. The machine is not dedicating that kind of money anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last time we saw that, frankly, it went away with Matt Lauer. Matt Lauer was making, um, you know, Clayton Kirkshaw kind of money and uh, was was holding a lot together um as as a result of that, as a place you know where, people, but what you see the business has contracted. There's nobody who's commanding those kinds of audiences. It's getting spread apart, and communities become important. So, a Rachel Maddow has an incredibly strong community and and viewership. It doesn't have to be uh, 22 million people to be a really lucrative and really important for the national conversation. You you mentioned Matt Lauer. So as long as we're there, were you? Um were you surprised by that story? And what about generally uh, this uh, this whole movement that's overtaken not just television news, but obviously uh, you know m- movies and yeah. politics and 
Look, I think it's a, I think it's a huge deal. I think, you know, was I surprised about me at Matt? Yeah. I was surprised by some of the details uh, of what was going on. Um, you know, I definitely heard things about, you know, certain things that he might do, but nothing that would have been abusive in this way or exploitive in this way or, or harassing in this way. So I was surprised about that. And I think that, you know, it's a conversation that men don't generally tend mm-hmm. to be engaged in. Right. And that's not right. You know what I mean? There, there ought to be a culture where men are, are checking each other and, uh, and, and and not kind of looking the other way. But, you know, this is not something that I think, in my experience, that a lot of men are talking about, you know, around the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if women are and they know, oh, well, this guy is doing X and this guy is doing Y. And I think... Though I think it's fair to say that uh, a lot of men are probably thinking about this more no question. And that's a positive thing. No, I think it's a really positive thing to think about, you know, what are the appropriate boundaries of the, you know, of the, uh, um, uh, you know, of any relationship and how to keep, you know, I, you're never going to keep dating and relationships out of the workplace. But you also have to really think about what does it mean to sexualize the workplace? Mm, right. And once you do that, how do you, you know, make things unfair, inappropriate, um, there's just so much that can go wrong. And I think that that's a conversation that's starting to happen appropriately. And, you know, there may be cases too, where it's now gone, uh, over the line and that's going to happen, but it doesn't mean that the issue isn't real and, and really important. Let me return to your, your journey for a yeah. second. You, you, you went to, uh, the NBC, uh, station in Sacramento, uh, which is a which is a big deal, right? Um, you were there. You went there in '94. Were you there during that whole Prop 187 thing with Pete Wilson in California? That was a big story in Sacramento. That yeah, year. it was a big story. I came in. Uh, yes, I mean I wasn't primarily covering that, but I was definitely around. For it's interesting because that. that was sort of a forerunner of yeah. the debate we're having today. It really is. Uh, that was the big anti-immigration proposition that he championed as part of his reelection campaign. And it really damaged the Republican Party in California. Really, until this day, only Schwarzenegger has has broken through since right. that time. And I think a lot about President George W. Bush, who I covered, and I thought really got immigration right. And I yeah. was, as a matter of fact, um, today I was on Twitter and I was pushing back against Ari Fleischer, who was Bush's press secretary, a little bit, who now supports you know the idea of a wall. And I said, well, I respect your views, but George W. Bush would not have supported a wall, right? Because it was inconsistent with his values, which included that family values don't end at the Rio Grande. And so, what I think. George Bush, Governor Bush of Texas, understood about border issues, security issues. He also understood that a politics of blaming others, of blaming Mexicans for job losses, uh, of raising the specter of fear um, uh, from immigrants and refugees was wrong. And I think, you know— He was vocal at that time in rejecting Proposition 187-type initiative— he was, and if it were not, I mean, I was his first foreign trip was to with uh, to Mexico to meet with Vicente Fox, and I remember that was a day when the, when Rocky Plains went into the U.S. no fly zone, and he talked about keeping Saddam in his box, and then nine eleven happened, and it was gone. Poof, there was no way he was going to get it. And when he returned to it later on, he was too damaged politically, and then his own party started to demagogue this issue. And I have to tell you, I mean, I feel very strongly about this because just I think as a matter of fact and good policy um you know the the demagoguery and the and the scaremongering that republicans were engaged in around uh immigration back in in 06 and 07 the specter of of terrorists coming on through our southern border well it hasn't happened and it was wrong then and it's wrong now and we're seeing this kind of you know return to it and uh and it's a shame and oddly I keep I keep thinking that that Donald Trump is so mercurial that he could be a guy to actually stand up to that, even as he holds some of those views. So crazily, I think a big deal. Well, you know, one thing I wonder about is um, whether he's going to start bridling at this notion that he's being managed by yeah the by his staff by some of those strident people in the base that he can't break free from them that he can't that the the art of the deal guy can't make a deal because nobody will let him make a deal or right you know well it, somebody's got to come to him and say look if you're either going to be a guy who 
who crests in the 30s of public approval, or you're going to try to go bigger. The thing I do believe about Donald Trump, um, the New Yorker had a piece about how China is playing, you know, how they're interacting with President Trump, and how they understand that what he cares about more than anything else is jobs, and that he does want to win. And I think he wants to win big deals. I think he's so post-ideological in that sense. He just wants to be a winner. Yeah. No, I mean, there are certain things. Trade has been something he's talked about for 30 years. Yeah. This immigration thing seems like something he picked up on as a device right. uh, to uh, galvanize a base. Uh, but it could be that he is imprisoned by that base now and doesn't feel that he can move. You covered the OJ trial. Yeah. Um, we talked about that the, the issue of immigration. The issue of race was very much a part of that. You went down there to do what network feeds is that yeah so the affiliates local affiliates yeah exactly mm-hmm. so the affiliates have that division and i was there i was in sacramento and then i got dispatched to do it and uh you know to go back home to los angeles and uh, and cover that and so i was there i happened to be there when he tried on the bloody glove by the way in the courtroom uh-huh. which was quite a uh, it was quite a moment you knew instantly that that was we well, knew instantly that that had gone south and i'll tell you what were you looking at the jury when he did that well, yes i was looking at the jury but more importantly after the break they took a break and they came out to kind of uh, adjourn for the day. And there were two women in the back row of the jury who were kind of laughing, kind of giggling to each other. And I thought, you know, this was an incredibly important moment. The accused murderer tried on the murderer's glove. Had they fit and had they been persuasive, I know these jurors would have been laughing. Mm-hmm. I thought that was quite a moment. And it, obviously it didn't take, you know legal genius to figure that out. But it was an observation I was able to make in real time. And I did learn a lot. Um, I learned a lot from that case and have thought a lot and talked a lot about that case um, uh, in in the years that have gone on. And I thought the piece that was done um, uh, by ESPN was so important because as many people felt that the verdict was a total injustice, and I have I totally believe that. I think he was 100% guilty. You know, we have to look around and absorb the fact that how many African-American mm-hmm. families have had to live with, uh, with a broken justice and had to eat it. And, um, and uh, this was jury nullification the, the other way. And the prosecution, you know, made a lot of mistakes. They did. And, uh, and Johnny Cochran and the defense team were very artful at playing. Right. All of those things. Very, and Johnny very well. Cochran was a great politician. I used to, I used to, inter- I used to m- mimic him all the time, and I would do it for him, and he and, and he would love it. He's like, "Who am I? I'm O.J. Simpson in a hat. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to kill anybody." And, uh, but he would come down, he would come down into the morning uh, gauntlet of reporters, and he was so astute at not only being charming and kind of casting in the way that any good media, you know, specialist. He would also not answer any questions he didn't want to answer. I would always tell people, like, here's my best media advice is when you get lots of questions, only answer the ones you want to answer. Well, he, he, had, was plenty of, he had plenty of not just courtroom experience, but he was on television quite a bit yeah. before uh, he right. took that case. For NBC. So, yeah. yeah. So he, he had uh, a lot of experience. You also you, you did the Oklahoma City bombing trial, which the greatest virtue of which is you got to meet your wife there. Yes, yes. Uh, but... Uh, you, uh, Beth Wilkinson, we should say, who, for those who, yes. who who are following along here, who, as we mentioned earlier, uh, a really, really um, uh, decorated uh, lawyer in this country, prosecutor, and with an incredible history. Um, and then you got shipped to Washington to cover the Lewinsky yeah. uh, case. Which, by the way, as we talk, as we speak today, we're we're marking the twentieth anniversary, or just one day after uh, of that story breaking. Uh, I remember all those reporters calling me from Washington. I was sitting here in Chicago, saying, "Well, he's going to have to resign. Don't you think right, he's going to have to right. resign?" Kind of misread the politics of the country. Uh, talk about that covering that. Well, I mean, it was fascinating. I think I felt really kind of in over my head at first coming to Washington and then on a major story trying to keep up with all the other journalists and all the the other analysts um, and and, you know, just trying to manage everything that was that was coming my way, trying to understand the, the politics of the country and. Um, I guess the, the question of morality and politics as well um, became an issue. 
but it was it was interesting to be around to get some up close look at um at how the Clinton White House operated. I was not somebody who, you know, I didn't have a lot of inside access. I was a little bit more on the outside, but I was getting a sense of what a generation of reporters were dealing with with the Clintons. And then I pivoted and I started covering uh, Bush and, and covering the Bush years. And it was interesting, I think, to to start covering a political figure like Bush, who pivots off of those years in a way uh, where he positions himself as someone who uh, you may like or dislike his politics, but who was going to restore uh, dignity, was going to restore honor and dignity, you know, to the White House. And that uh, and that mattered to a lot of people. You uh, you as you mentioned, covered that Bush campaign, uh, including the the long recount, I'm sure. Um, But you were with him. On September 11th mm-hmm. of 2001, when he was down, famously down in Florida, and he was in a classroom when he was told the news that the Twin Towers had been attacked. What are your recollections of that day? Well, I think my, my first recollection was, um, you know, just the shock of it. I was on the phone with Beth, actually, when the second tower hit, and my, my producer, Antoine Sanfuentes, said, second tower has been hit. You know, we got to figure out how to get on the air. It, it was, you know... Um, this is relatively unimportant, but at the moment, what you care about is how to get the story out. And we were we had some inability to do that because we were it was part of the traveling press pool and so forth. And then we ended up getting stuck there that first night. And I remember thinking, you know, this is bigger than me. This is a national, you know, tragedy. And uh, you know, we'll get back into it. And and we did. And we we got up to Washington. And then I was with him on September 14th down at Ground Zero. I was the only television correspondent then. And um, you know, I just I remember two things, David. I guess one, I was incredibly uh, moved emotionally by it, and was actually having a hard time. The day that I was going up with the president on September fourteenth, I was watching the morning shows, the Today Show, and I was really kind of losing my emotions. You know, losing control of my emotions. And my my friend Ron Fournier, who you remember well yes. from Associated Press at the time, when he covered the White House with me, and he said, "Once you get up there, you'll get your game face on, and you'll be fine." But you know. It's hard if you weren't there to remember how painful it was and traumatizing it was, and then to kind of jump into that the the um, the coverage of something that was moving so quickly, and to also be able to still hold the White House accountable uh, and get into something of a debate and the run up to what was the war in Afghanistan and and Iraq. It was uh, it was a very intense time. You did get into debates. Yeah. You had uh, well. Let, let's just take a quick break, and we'll be right back with. David Gregory. You famously got into it with Scott uh, McClennan. Uh, McClellan, yeah. McClellan, I mean. Uh, when, uh, uh, I guess you were in an off-camera scrum. Right, Well, so this was in the gaggle, right? When yes. They, I, if they still have a gaggle. Yes. Um, right, and the issue, the issue had to do with, uh, I think, support for... Um, uh, uh, Brown, you know, who was the FEMA director at the time. Um, so I believe this was around Hurricane Katrina. It, 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 I believe it was something around that. But anyway, he, he was, I was, it was this question of, do you still have confidence in someone? And, and he was really giving me a hard time. And I said, don't be a jerk to me just because, you know, you don't want to answer this. And um, so that kind of took off. And, uh, and Fox News, especially, you know, went off. And he with, said something about you not that you not being on camera. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, the cameras are off. And I always say to people, like, if you think I'm really obnoxious and and annoying and have a bad temper, I mean, at least give me credit for the fact that I did it even when the cameras were off. <laughs> uh, but you know, but the truth is that I had. Um, I, I mean, I struggle with my temper anyway, just as a human being and as a father, and and, and it's not something then, I'm proud oh, of. I got a couple of questions I want to eliminate. Then, if you're telling me you got to, yeah, <laughs> no, 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 no. But but but, but I, you know. But I think I did. I, I mean, I think I was kind of immature at times covering the White House, um, especially in the briefing room, and that I would I would really get angry. And instead of kind of recognizing, okay, this person's got this job to do, and and I, I mean, the truth is, I fought a lot harder with Ari Fleischer, and I would sometimes slip him notes saying, "I'm sorry, I was too obnoxious." But you know, I, I think I was always fair. But in those moments, I got I got pretty hot, and and in that one, uh, I remember my wife Beth saying, "You know, you just shouldn't talk to anybody like that. You just shouldn't do that." And I was on Meet the Press. And we're talking about that, and I apologized. Uh, to you, him. you, um, uh, you must look at what's going on now through the. You're here at the University of Chicago at the Institute of Politics yeah. to do a to lead a panel on covering Trump. 
you see all kinds of friction between reporters and the White House press secretaries now. What, looking through the prism of your own experience, how do you react to the way Trump is being covered and the way the White House press corps is dealing with uh, the folks they have to deal with? So I, I think I'd have a really hard time. Um, I really do. I think I'd have a hard time covering this White House because I think they're unserious uh, people in many regards. And I think they've done things that show a lack of integrity. But they are doing the job and you're, you're covering, you know, you're covering the institution, you're covering the presidency and you have to respect the presidency. I'll never forget Fournier, Ron Fournier again, first uh, pool spray we had in the, uh, in the cabinet room and he looked at President Bush on his first day and he said, welcome to the White House. And Bush said, thanks very much. But what I loved about Fournier doing that, not in an arrogant way, it was just a reminder, this is the people's house. Yeah. I felt it's, that every day when I went yeah. into I felt that sense of history every day when I walked in that building. So I think I sometimes worry that this president doesn't. Well, I agree with that. I agree that he's he's willfully ignorant of the history and disdainful of it, and he thinks that it's a reality show. And I feel that very strong. And I feel like what his whether Sean Spicer or what Sarah Sanders does and chooses to do, I think, is really unfortunate. But I think what's important is that the press corps. You can't be led by emotion. You can't get angry. You have a job to do, and you have to keep pressing and keep pressing. And you have to work with each other. John King, our colleague at CNN, often said, you know, when we would talk about questions to ask, it's important that we feed off of each mm -hmm. other instead of just play for ourselves. We have to be listening and work as a group. And, and follow up on And follow up. Else, and right? yes, you know what? The White House press pool, you know, uh, core can be uh, – uh, it can be, there can be a pack mentality. There can be groupthink. Um, uh, there can be laziness. I've yeah, seen but sometimes if you don't work together, you're just not going to get You're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, and right. I, so I think that's the key to it. Um, mm -hmm. That's the key to it. And I think, you know, the efforts to, to marginalize them um, is something that's unfortunate. And, and, you know, it's very easy to see through it. Let me ask you a couple more um, uh personal uh, questions. I meant to ask you about your mom. We talked yeah. about your dad. She had her own struggles uh, when you were when you were yeah a yeah my mom and it had a big impact on me in terms of I would say uh, you know my own sense of identity uh, my ambition my mom was an alcoholic um, she's been sober now over 30 years good for her but uh, yeah I mean she she struggled uh, with addiction early on and uh, certainly when married to my father and you know, it's when you're a child of a uh, of an addict. You know, you do everything you can to protect that secret, and it sucks. And it's, uh, you know, uh, there's also things. I was just watching this uh, thirty for thirty on Chris Heron, the basketball player, mm -hmm. that amazing story of addiction. How well he operated, quote unquote, well he was operating as a basketball player, even though he had this horrible sickness and addiction. And my mother did that too. She was functioning and she kind of frayed at the edges. And then she was driving one night, and I was in the car, and I. Had just been at a speech and debate tournament and I'd won and my speech coach, uh, my speech and debate coach was with me in the back of the seat in the back uh, uh, row. And my mother, I could tell was drunk and she was swerving and, and uh, I'd been used to this, unfortunately, but she got pulled over and she got arrested that night. And I was 15 years old and she was taken away in handcuffs. And how did that impact on you? Well, at first, uh, at first there was a sense of uh, relief that the secret was out. Um, but I was really angry and I was ashamed and I carried that anger for a long time, you know, into adulthood. I think my mother sometimes thinks I, I carry it even still today. But the truth is I become humbler and humbler as I not only see the effects of addiction in other people, as I struggle as a parent to monitor kids, mm -hmm. you know, one of whom is a teenager, um, to recognize that hey, she was sick, she was doing the best she could. And thank God, you know, that she that, didn't kill anybody. That, it, is, it is good of you to recognize that now. It's also unfair to have expected that you should have thought about it that way then. Yeah, no, and nobody expected. Not right. my mom, not anybody else expected me to think about it then. But I was very, I internalized a lot about that. And so what I wanted and a lot of my ambition in my career was fueled by my sense of withdrawing from that, wanting to escape from it. I literally would, you know, close the door of my room. I was not 
you know, a terribly effective student, but I would close the door in my room and I would sit there and watch the evening news and I would dream about being in some of those places. So I found a sense of meaning around achievement of that goal, that that would be my rescue. So let me ask you the next question. You reached the one of the most um, prestigious heights in television news, and you lost the job. Yeah. You were very, very publicly fired. Yeah. Uh, and you had been someone who, from a very early age, had achieved, achieved, succeeded, succeeded. That was your M.O. Yeah. How, you, how, do you, how did you deal with that? Not always well. I mean, it was really hard. I mean, I thought I had a better, you know, at the same time I've been on this kind of religious journey and, and yes, I want to ask you about that spiritual life. But, you know, so I thought I kind of had it covered, you know, and I, I sort of understood what it was and I had it in context. But I don't think I fully prepared myself for the blow to uh, a sense of identity and a sense of meaning. And, um, and so I really did go through a period of thinking, well, if I'm not that, then who cares about me? And what right. does it matter what I say? And, uh, and, and what will I do? And it was as if everybody was kind of looking at me to say, you know, God, what happened to him? And, and I felt alone. You know, I mean, I, I, there, was, there was an exuberance uh, in the coverage of me that I felt was, uh, you know, the very worst of that kind of Washington gossipy journalism. And, uh, but it's there. And I think I was responsible somewhat for that because I think people thought I was aloof and arrogant. And I think uh, they thought that I was out for myself too much. And so when bad stuff happened, I don't think I had enough of a community around me to say, hey, you know, this guy does a good job and circumstances happen, whatever. I think there were people thinking, ah, oh, well, you know, he finally, he finally got his. And so, you know, I had to reckon with that and I had to get to a place where I could, I could embrace what it means to be truly humbled, to be humiliated, to be brought low and to recognize that that's okay. That it had its season, and it was great, but that I had to find ways of really forging identity that were not just about that. Yeah, because life isn't all about that. Right. I mean, you talk about you were driving home when you were 15 in that car, and you just won this debate tournament. And one of the ways, you know, when you come from these families where achievement is stressed, um, there's a sense that you know, lo- love is conditioned upon achievement. Right. And if you don't achieve, like, where, what are you? Right. Uh, and that's not right. Yeah. That's not right. But it's common among people who are high, who are high achievers. So one of the things you got from George W. Bush was a question that became a title of your book, which is, How's Your Faith? And the subtitle is An Unlikely Spiritual Journey. You weren't a religious person. You weren't raised in a religious household, as we talked about earlier. Your father was uh, Jewish. Your mother was Catholic. And neither, I I don't know about your mother, but I I gather neither were particularly religious no, in their practice. No, I mean I had a I had I mean I had an upbringing I think similar to yours. We yeah. talked about this. I was a yeah. secular Jew. I was right. bar mitzvah. I had a sense right. of identity right. that I didn't really know very much. Exactly. And I certainly yeah. was not a very spiritual person in the least. And I got on this path, I think, actually at a period when I was getting, I was very successful. I was just about to get Meet the Press, but I was at the White House. I was doing very well. And, you know, my wife and I were talking about raising the kids as a Jewish family, but she, but Beth really impressed upon She's me. She's a Methodist. A Methodist, right. Grew up in a Protestant. And, and she said, you know, look, if we're going to do this, you know, you need to be the real deal. You need to know. You need to lead our family yeah. in faith in a way that would, because she had a very strong faith. So she gave me both this gift, but also this challenge. And I took it very seriously. And I thought, you know, it, it raised this question of, you know, what does it all mean? Who am I really? What am I after? And that started to open up these new questions that I dealt with. And I certainly were, was dealing with as things were going poorly for me. I, I don't want people to think I, you know, I lost my job and found God. I mean, that would have been a great story. But I was on this path <laughs> beforehand. Um, and the thing I really that I really admired about, first of all, I admired the president and his faith. 
because I, it, it was very similar to my mother's. Not the faith part. But here's a guy who clearly had a problem with alcohol. I yeah. don't think he calls himself an alcoholic but and doesn't work the program. But he So he became born again. And that was a discipline uh, that helped him reach a, a really sen- a sense of meaning, a sense of identity, and a sense of wanting to forge a relationship with God that could get him to a place of his best self. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It paid off pretty well for him. And I thought that it was similar. I thought I recognized in him some of that dedication that I'd seen in my mother to overcome those problems and be committed to meaning uh, and to purpose. Even though my mom's life materially or in other ways didn't vastly improve, but she was a happy, optimistic person who wanted to redeem her life, and she did that. And here he had done that as well. So when he said to me, How's your faith? You know, I remember thinking, you know, none of your damn business. But of course, I didn't think that. I I, I know why he was asking the question. And I I so appreciated it because I thought, what a question. And only he would ask such a question because it's this invitation to think about, well, so how's my faith? Is it what it was when I was younger? Mm-hmm. When is it the strongest? With whom is it the strongest? And would my life be different or better if my faith were stronger? And I came to realize after you know being on this path for you know fifteen years, you know that your questions may be di- your answers may be different than my answers. But leaning into those questions is really really worthwhile. And when I pray now, and when I try to work through things now. Um, there's a relationship uh, with God that's very meaningful to me that I think uh, helps me to try to be better and uh, reminds me um, of, I don't know, the, the, the true grounding that my life has achieved, which is I've had great heights, I've experienced some sadness and some pain, and I've made mistakes. Um, but I'm kind of, you know, rolling through it. And I'm no better than anybody else and no worse than anybody else. But, you know, I've experienced something professionally that's really worthwhile, which is a kind of leveling off and a reminder of what is it you really like to do. And, uh, and you know... And that probably it, at a propitious time for your family. To, yeah. Because you've been, you know, it's easy to breeze by those years when your kids... That's are, right. I, I feel I was guilty of that too much when I was pursuing what I was doing. Uh, so to stop and take stock of the gift right. of family and the gift of children, you know. There's also an awareness, you know, my wife has built a a, a very successful law firm, boutique mm-hmm. trial law firm, and I'm incredibly proud of her and admire her a great deal. And I do consider that we are partners, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I still, you know, I had so many years where people wouldn't even talk to her and they just recognize me. And then, you know, you come to realize it's not really about me. It was about the job. Right. And now I'm in a position where often she's getting the credit. And, and uh, but I think we've got a level head about these things, about what they are. And negotiating this path about what you do in your career, what you want to do, am I thriving, am I not thriving, do I really want to do this, or what about, you know, the commitment I have to my children? You know, I think women struggle with this, I think men struggle with this, I struggle with it, I want, you know, I'm in a wonderful position where I can be with my kids a lot and have a lot of flexibility uh, to partner with Beth in parenting them, I can be at all these games, and there are times I feel like, damn, I'm not thriving, I'm not reaching those heights. Um, so it's never perfect. You know, there are days when I, when I say, darn, I'm missing out. I'm not fulfilled. I'm not thriving. And then there are days when I say, this is great. But there's also a lot of time where there's just the tension of like, it's not perfect, but I'm just going to keep working it and see where it takes me. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a solidity to that, a serenity to that. Yeah. That is really, that must be a tremendous relief. It is a relief. And I'll tell you what, I I will tell you that as I sit here now and I look at what's happening at some big media enterprises, including where I used to work, I don't miss being there. I don't Mm -hmm. miss because you know what? Doing this kind of work, doing uh, to to work as a journalist or someone who can analyze and comment on the issues of the day, that's great fun. And it's really interesting. And when other things get in the way, that's not fun. And you don't want things to get in the way of an otherwise fun job. And yeah. uh, That's so, the hardest lesson is yeah. even when you're doing the work to just be free enough to enjoy the great, the great uh, gift of being able to do something that interests you, something right. that is, you know, that, that is a, 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 that's when people, I think, 
I know I achieve the best work that I do is when I just am into it and not because I'm thinking about what I'm achieving by doing right. it. You know? you know, it's interesting. So I, I just recently read Victor Frankl's Man in Search of Meaning. And I, what really struck with me is something he says more than once, and that is that happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me so much of how my wife, Beth, has approached her career. Now, she's phenomenally successful. I'm so proud of her. But she didn't really set out for this. You know, she set out to do well in school, to get a good education, to work hard. Yeah, she wanted to be a lawyer. And she just really kind of put her nose down and worked hard and didn't realize it would lead to this. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, uh, I think you've had aspects of this, too, in your own career about what you cared about doing and people that you, you know, that's the other thing. In your career, you wanted to work. You wanted to be, you believed in these people. Mm-hmm. Paul Simon and Barack Obama. These were risky propositions. Had a few clunkers in there. Right, of course. But you still believed in people, and maybe they were successful, maybe they weren't. But that idea of it just should have been hard work. I feel very blessed. This work at the university with these young people at the Institute of Politics, having the ability to have these kinds of conversations, it's, it's a great thing. It's meaningful, and it's a reminder, especially to younger people, and when I've had an opportunity to, to teach, it is to say that, you know, become part of something, enjoy the pursuit of working with others, and, um, you know, be strategic. You know, I, I don't have, I don't, I have some regrets, but I do look back at my own career and I'm still young, I'm 47, but I look back, I was, uh, I was sort of engineered to be what I was and that's all well and good. And I was successful at it, but there's a, there's a price to be paid at a, at a human price where you're like a, you're a missile, you're not a human being. And, uh, and I, um, I would like to reduce some of that and understand that it's working with others, being part of a team instead of just having it be about you is a really worthwhile thing. And I think, I guess I feel like I'm engaged in that a lot more now. Well, it is a, always a pleasure Thank to, you. To, to be with your brother and to, to have conversations like these. And honestly, um, I so admire how you, you've handled this phase of your life. And uh, I'm sure the next phases will be interesting and satisfying. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.